Welcome to Trade Matters, a podcast of the Clayton Yider Institute of International Trade and Finance at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Jill O'Donnell. Our guest today is Dr. Christine McDaniel, a senior research fellow at George Mason University's Mercatus Center, focused on international trade, globalization, and intellectual property rights. She has also held several positions in the U.S. government, including Deputy Assistant Secretary at the Treasury Department and Senior Trade Economist at the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Christine McDaniel, thank you so much for being on Trade Matters today. Thank you so much for having me. So you are doing a lot of really interesting work on capturing trade flows and trade statistics and tariff exclusion processes that are in place But I want to start with kind of a bigger picture question here, stepping back for a moment. Um, We have been awash in trade statistics over the last couple of years as trade policy changes and the trade war with China have been often front and center in the news. So I'm really excited to talk with you about unpacking what some of those things actually mean and how we know what we know about where things go around the globe. So to begin by talking about what we mean by trade statistics, we know certainly exports measure what a country sells abroad, imports measure what a country buys from abroad. That sounds simple, but it it can get a lot more complicated. Um, So I want to start by asking you, when we see statistics in the newspaper about our U.S. uh, bilateral trade deficit with China, for example, or overall deficit, how do we really know what's behind those numbers? How do we really know where things go in what quantities and with what degree of accuracy do we know them? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, We actually are awash in data. You're right, big data. And over the past 5, 10, 15 years, the amount of data we have available has increased exponentially. However, the meaning of data that we traditionally use is in many ways, becoming meaningless over time. Our industries are changing, what can flow across borders, how we measure what is flowing across borders, what we don't measure that's going across borders, and then how companies are recording those flows. It's all changing, and our traditional trade statistics have not kept up. And so while we're really good at measuring containers and and goods trade, uh, containers that move across borders and what's inside those containers in terms of quantity, you know, volume, as well as unit values and, and, and prices. And then we also can see what happens with tariffs and non-tariff barriers. So we're really, really good at understanding how different trade policies affect goods trade. We don't have that type of data on services trade. And that means we don't really know how services trade policy has affected services trade. And that's a problem because 80% of our economy is in services. And so um, we have, uh, we're using old measures for a new economy. And that, that concerns a lot of us. So that's a perfect segue into the work that you're doing right now, as I understand it, that I wanted to ask you about. As you say, we're using old measures for a new economy. And I think it's a really good reminder that the majority of the U.S. economy is services, 80%, as you said. So I'd like to talk about the work you're doing on the trade that we don't track and what you're learning there. Um, And you've mentioned that a lot of that has to do with research and development flows, intellectual property intensive services, digital flows. Tell us a little bit more about how you're approaching this task 
of tracking the trade that we don't in fact track and, and what's all involved there? Well, so I'm not really tracking the trade we don't track, but um, I'm trying to hold up mirrors to some of the activities to see what, um, you know, to kind of get a sense of what we're missing. So, um, so about 10 years or so ago, and, and this, um, and we're really talking about, you know, um, well, a couple of things. One is trade and value added, and then, um, and that does apply to goods trade. But, and then we're talking about services as well. So these are two big issues going on that we know are uh, leading to misinterpretations of our trade data. So first, let's talk about trade and value added. So this idea gets to, so, and uh, Robert Koopman and some of his colleagues wrote a paper about uh, on this about over 10 years ago or so now. Um, the idea here is for your listeners, so think about, you know, just look at the, if you have a, your phone in front of you, look at that phone. And so let's say your phone costs um, $500, right? And it turns out, um, a while ago, a group of researchers got together and they tracked the value of um, like breaking up the value capture of that phone, basically where the where the revenues, sales and profits went back to. Uh, and, and then also compared that, tracked that against labor, assembly, capital, R&D, marketing, sales, distribution, etc. And it turns out that a very small share of those sales actually go back to the labor side, the assembly side. So while the the uh, majority of the labor is actually done in China, less than five percent of the revenues go back to China. Uh, over sixty percent of the value capture goes to the United States. That's nearly all in design and marketing by Apple. So for policymakers, you know, the takeaway here is that there's little value in assembly, right? There's little value in electronics assembly. So bringing high volume electronics assembly back to the United States is not necessarily the path to good jobs or economic growth. And what about what that tells us about our, in this case, our bilateral trade deficit with China? So as you mentioned, only a very small value of that iPhone is actually due to what happens in China. And yet when that phone is exported from China to the United States, the full value of that gets credited as an export from China. So what what does this say about our, our, our trade deficit in that case, and how might it look different if we could really capture trade and value added accurately? So that changes um, from year to year, of course, because how companies sort themselves out in the value chains change. But uh, we have seen, I think it was based on 2016 data, if we were to measure our trade balance, our trade deficit with China by value added statistics, it would shrink by about 40%. That's significant. Yeah, it's not trivial. And, you know, and, and so that, um, you know, for a trade economist, I mean, from any economist really will, you know, will tell you that the looking at a trade, your trade balance is not necessarily a good measure of looking at um, economic performance or the strength of a trading relationship. Right. I mean, if um, so, some of your readers that have taken or uh, listeners micro and macro will will remember current account, capital account. The current account is mostly our, our trade balance is, is literally of our capital account. 
the United States attracts a lot of dollars. We are a very attractive place for people around the world to put their money. And that brings in a lot of dollars into the United States. We are also a largely consumer-driven economy. We have a capital account surplus. And remember, you don't export just for the sake of exporting, right? You're exporting uh, for an exchange that you can use to buy things, right? And so by simply focusing on the current account side, you're missing the other side of the entire equation. But this particular administration is uh, extremely focused on the, the trade deficit. And so that's why, you know, it, um, it, it's interesting now to really dive deep into these trade numbers and see what they are telling us and see if, what they're not telling us. Right. So and what, if I can ask, what is preventing us from more accurately reporting trade and value added? Because as you mentioned, in the case of China, for example, that would make our bilateral deficit shrink by 40 percent in a given year. Um, and that's really significant. It would look really different. So why why do we not yet have a be- better handle on how this this looks? Have, have our statistical methods just not caught up with this age of global supply chains yet? Or, or what's what would you say to that? Well, it will take a concerted effort and cooperation uh, on the part of all countries that report their exports and imports. Uh, They will have to keep better track of value added. They will have to, you know, keep better track of um, basically be able to trace the the uh, the supply chain, or at least be able to capture to to have a number on the value added uh, of each product and goods and services that are going in and out of their country. Uh, and you know that means that all the all the participating countries, uh, basically all the WTO members, will have to tweak. For some, it will be a tweak. For some, it will be a human a huge change on how they report their data, how they track their data. And you know, I I don't. I, it might happen in my lifetime. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it if it if we got there. The OECD does have a trade and value added database. So it can be done. Now, there are a lot of um, estimates or guesstimates in there, right? Because not all countries trace their value added as carefully as others. But it's definitely doable. And with new technologies, like blockchain technology, for example, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely more, it look, it's looking more possible today than it did about a decade ago. And so it's, it's exciting. You know, there are even our Customs and Border Patrol here in the U.S., you know, they're starting to think, you know, what is what is the port of the future looking like, right? How is blockchain going to um, allow us to capture more information and data? And so if enough countries do that, you know, there could be enough um, momentum there to capture much better data. And it sounds like what you're saying is that there may be a time when we do get there where it becomes commonplace for countries perhaps to report their trade statistics in the same way in a coordinated way that captures trade and value added. And then we'd all have a lot more insight into exactly where um, value in various products is coming from. That's right. So on services, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I want to come back to that. So tell me a little bit more about what is being done to better track the flow of services, exports. So the Bureau of Economic Analysis has evolved and made a lot of improvements on how they track services they you know other their counterparts and 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 other countries have as well Uh, the oecd of course is is leading a lot of these efforts 
Um, and so what is a service? So a service is like a haircut. It's an airplane ride. It's a detective service, right? It's, um, it's buying Netflix for a year or, or, a, you know, downloading a, a video. It can be a lot of things, right? It's basically, I am paying money to get something that's not necessarily tangible, but I'm getting value from it. And that is much more easily, much more easily measured when it's a domestic transaction than when it's a cross-border transaction. And that's so. For instance, um, so if you think of um, think of a big um, uh, like accounting services firm, and they have a headquarters headquarters in the United States, and they have affiliates all around the world, um, and they provide services to their affiliates, um, and then their affiliates provide services to others. And but the question is, where is that actual original value, that knowledge, getting generated? Where is the original service getting generated coming from versus where it's showing up in the data. And so when accounting company X, Y, and Z in the US sells a service to their affiliate in Japan and their Japanese affiliate sells a service to a, say just a regular a, a domestic Japanese company, even if the headquarters in the US is providing that service, it may show up as a sales by an affiliate or a subsidiary. And for that accounting firm, that really is an export for them, but it doesn't necessarily show up as an export. So in, in contrast, if you're a soybean farmer, whenever you sell soybeans cross border, it's very clearly in the data. You can go to your representative, your senator, you can go to USTR with your trade numbers, clearly stating how much you sold. You can clearly show, you know, look, that country changed the regulation on this date, and you can clearly see it in, in our trade data. You know, they stopped buying from us, right? Well, it's harder for services firms to show how rules and regulations and laws abroad and, and rule of law abroad may or may not affect their ability to sell their services abroad. So... It's it's sort of like you know your your service services firms are going up to the hill, going to USTR with one hand behind their back, because increasingly policymakers rely on export data to to look at the quote unquote value of a particular industry or how important um, a, a policy change should be or how to prioritize your asks you know across the table. I know you had Andrea Durkin on the other day and. She knows a lot about trade negotiations and trade negotiators have to prioritize, right? They have, you know, a hundred different people at the door any given day, a hundred different asks, where do they start prioritizing? They have to find some way to measure the payoffs. And so for services firms, they, like I said, I think they largely come with one hand tied behind their back because they don't necessarily have the data that soybean farmers have or goods, really goods producers have when um, they want to show their economic contribution or the contribution to U.S. trade. So it's important to remember, as you well know, that the U.S. typically runs a surplus in trade and services. Is there any sense of how much larger that surplus would be if we were able to capture all of the economic contributions that services exporting firms are making to U.S. exports overall? 
That's a great question. <laughs> that is, um, that it would be a great topic for for somebody to explore. Uh, we, I remember looking at the S and P five hundred um, back in the seventies, eighties. If you look at the ratio of book value to market value of the S and P five hundred, I think it was like mid seventies or early eighties. It was about um, book value to market value was about eighty to twenty. So, in other words their book value, um, you know, 80%, their market value at 20%. Today it's flipped, right? Today the market value is um, so much greater than the book value. And that spread is even bigger for tech firms, firms that are knowledge intensive. And, you know, there's this firm specific knowledge capital, right? Firms like that have a much bigger spread on the book to market value in their um, in in their in their um, in the S and P five hundred and their um, and the stock exchanges in general and I think that it reflects the difficulty number one the difficulty of of measuring intangibles but also the importance of intangibles because the market is definitely putting a big value on those intangibles and it's not showing up in the book value but it's but the market clearly sees it and is reacting to it and is putting a, a value on it. So it's um, it's it's a bit elusive, but it's it's definitely it's definitely there. Well, that's a really interesting way of looking at that, and this is clearly an interesting and timely area of inquiry. So we will be following this at Trade Matters and following up with you at a later date, I'm sure, Christine. <laughs> Um, I do want to switch gears because I want to cover a really interesting paper that you wrote um, recently at the Mercatus Center, along with your colleague, Veronique Desbrugges, called The Downstream Costs of Trade Remedy Regulations. Just as a little background here for listeners, trade remedy regulations are laws the U.S. has in place as a way for domestic firms to seek foreign competition through import restrictions. And as you pointed out in your paper, these laws were put in place almost a century ago, U.S. trade remedy laws also require the U.S. government to consider only the effect restrictions on the petitioning firm, but the government is not required to consider the impact on the downstream industry, which are American manufacturers and workers along the supply chain. So that's the critical point in your paper that you're exploring. So in an era of global supply chains, where there's a lot of um, intermediate inputs that go into final goods, so the U.S. imports a lot of intermediate inputs that manufacturers need to use, um, and if there are protectionist measures in place that raise the cost of those intermediate inputs to help a domestic producer of those same inputs, that can hurt a lot of downstream users, as you're, you're pointing out in your paper. So walk us through this a little bit more about um, how you see this problem. Yeah, so this, this, uh, there's actually a fun um, backstory here, um, if I can just uh, take 60 seconds. So when I first got to Mercatus, it was over a year and a half ago now, I guess, they uh, my colleagues um, you know, took you know, take, took me out to lunch, you know, as as you do to new colleagues, and and um, and said, well, what would what if you were to do have one, what could be your moonshot if you were to, if there was one thing you could change in international trade trade policy, and basically feel good about dropping the mic, walking away, and doing something totally different, you know, feeling like you've achieved something, what would that be? And I didn't even I didn't even hesitate. I said, oh well, that's easy. It would be to uh, allow the International Trade Commission to consider downstream effects of anti-dumping countervailing duties in their decision-making process. 
and so anyway, and, and Vero was there, and so, um, and the rest, you know, um, is in this paper. So we um, went off and wrote this paper, and of course, we're not the first ones to, to, to think about this, to write about this. Um, a lot of people, you know, thought we were crazy, that, oh, this will never happen. Uh, and I don't know, it might not ever happen, but it definitely won't happen. Like Vero said, it definitely won't happen if nobody talks about it or writes about it. <laughs> and so... Um, and then with the, at that time, the incoming administration keen to exercise um, more authority over tariffs, it became obviously, you know, very um, timely also. Uh, so the idea here is that trade regulations will encompass a number of things, anti-dumping, countervailing duties, one, but there are other trade regulations as well, as we're seeing now, um, Section 232 being applied, 301 has has reemerged, but um, not all the time can uh, is it written into the rule book for the deciding agency to consider downstream effects. By downstream effects, I mean, for example, if you're making ice cream, you know how um, and um, and there's a milk industry, and the milk industry wants imports uh, to have a big tariff on them you know, would the government be allowed to consider the effect on you, you the ice cream maker, because you're going to be needing that milk or that cream. So in some of our trade laws, it is allowed, but in most it's it's not required. And in fact, for the International Trade Commission, when they look at anti-dumping countervailing duty laws, uh, countervailing duties, it's not even allowed. They are not even allowed to consider downstream effects. Now, so this means that there's a huge chunk of the economy often that is completely being ignored when a small group of people come and ask for protection. And we can see this in the data looking backwards. Remember during the Bush administration when uh, President Bush imposed steel tariffs, we, um, you know, 2020 hindsight and, and having all the data, now we see that 200,000 American manufacturing workers in steel consuming sectors lost their jobs because of those higher steel prices and those tariffs. But, and that's more than even existed in the steel industry in the first place, which was like 170, 187, 188,000 at the time. So, and it's even less now. But so in other words, more people lost their jobs because of those steel tariffs than, than even existed in the steel industry in the first place, right? And so um, now it could be the case, you know, even with the ability to consider downstream effects, the deciding government agency would still go ahead and do it, and that's fine. But we're just saying at least let them consider the downstream effects and, you know, allow that to be one point of consideration in their broader decision making process. So it sounds like a question of proportion because you're comparing and contrasting the employment numbers, say, in industries that use certain inputs versus um, the one firm or the a small group of firms that might be seeking the protection who also make those inputs. Because you could argue that you might be risking trading one problem for another if they are allowed to consider downstream users and don't offer then protection to that firm. Um, but if you're really talking about a sense of proportion here, then... Um, Maybe that's not the case. Does that make sense? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. 
I think it's also really interesting that you point out that trade remedy laws, when they do result in protection from foreign competition for a firm, that does not necessarily change the behavior of the offending foreign firm. Um, does that ever happen, or is that more a job for a multilateral forum like the World Trade Organization to apply pressure through some other channel to change behavior? Yeah, that's that's a really good point, Jill. Well, I would argue that in anti-dumping countervailing duty cases, there is very little evidence or zero to none that it, it affects behavior of the uh, accused firm. If it did affect behavior, then you know we we wouldn't be seeing the repetition of these cases on the same countries, the same products, year over year, over year, over year. And that's exactly what we're seeing. The, in, the, in multilateral fora, however, like the WTO, the WTO, just given the structure of the, of the uh, multilateral framework, it, it does seem that it has more of an effect on on the accused um, entity's behavior. So for instance, you know, look at Boeing and Airbus, right? Over the years, they they end up, you know, they, they kind of take turns taking each other to the WTO, right? Because remember our sub, our um, large civil aircraft subsidies agreement and WTO and, um, and then, you know, one year Boeing will say, hey, you know, you guys, you guys are, you know, violating this particular provision and that and that and, and then, They'll fight it out in the WTO, and Airbus will say, "Okay, well, you're right. We'll we'll change that." And then another, you know, five ten years later, Airbus will say, "Hey, Boeing, you guys, you shouldn't have gotten that big, you know, R and D job from so and so because it's a it's a it's a subsidy that's not allowed." And they'll fight it out, and Airbus will win, and Boeing will say, "Okay, yeah, you're right. So we're going to change that." And so it kind of works out over the long run because, you know, if if countries use that agreement that everyone agreed to, right, as sort of the governing set of rules and regulations. And when one thinks the other is going outside the bounds, you know, it's kind of a nice check, uh, check and balances, right? You can make sure everyone's still playing inside the rules that everyone agreed on. Well, uh, and that has, that does seem to work. But anti-dumping, countervailing duties, it's, it's hard to make the case that it really does change behavior. And if the issue is, is subsidies, which you know it largely is in a lot of these cases, um, and China is one of the most popular um, respondents in these cases, then you know the issue is, um, or the question is, can we create a, a, a framework that would put in the right incentives for China to change their behavior so it did not necessarily result in excessive subsidized own enterprises. You know, just given China's sheer size, right, whenever they decide to pump in some extra capital labor in a particular industry, given their sheer size, it it has it spills global world market and and it causes you know ripple effects, sometimes pretty big tidal waves in other in other markets. And so it is really disruptive having, uh, you know, countries subsidize their industries, especially large ones like China, and move markets. So it's understandable why we would, you know, you, why countries might want to have these tools in place. Um, the um, it's just you know some tools are more effective than others.
Right. Switching gears just a little bit, I want to talk about how all of this relates to the work you've done on the tariff exclusion request process that was set up by the United States as a result of the 232 steel tariffs and the 301 China investigation. And just to fill in our listeners and remind them, this was done because the U.S. imports a lot of capital goods and intermediate goods that manufacturers use to make what they make here. So the tariffs um, that were put in place on our trading partners as a result of the the 232 investigation on um, on steel and the 301 investigation on China hit the supply chain. And companies in the U.S. can make the case that these tariffs would harm them so they can formally request that a product be excluded from the tariffs. And the whole existence of that process, the tariff exclusion process, that seems to be like a really clear indication that our supply chains are truly global and the downstream industries and users in the supply chain are being impacted by these import tariffs that resulted from these two investigations. So first question is, should the change you propose to U.S. trade remedy laws to consider the downstream impact of protection also apply to 232 and 301 cases? Well, yes. I mean, to, to me, yes, that's obvious. It should. I mean, whenever the U.S. government is making a decision, uh, you know, that will have economic effects, uh, they, sh- you know, why, why wouldn't they consider the national economic interest? Why wouldn't they consider, you know, and that would include downstream effects. Now, we know that there are a lot of non-economic reasons that governments make decisions they make, right? Um, and, and uh, you know, being in government, you know, you, you see that, and you, you know, as an economist, my job is just to provide the best data and information and analysis I can to the policy, to the decision maker, and then you walk away, right? That's, that's what I was trained to do. Um, and so, and, you know, sometimes it goes one way, sometimes it goes another way. But I have seen, though, that over time, better and more effective decisions are made when the broader picture is taken into account. Now, the Section 232 and 301, um, that's, those are interesting because um, the three, well, the 232 process, yeah, does, you know, they both include this room for firms to request waivers, right, to get out of paying the tariff. If they can make the case that, for example, in the China case, you know, the China situation, if they can show that they would, they would be severely harmed if they had to pay this tariff, that their product is not related to China's made in 20, what is it, 2025 yes. uh, plan and and so on. And oh, and if there's no other place they could they could get that product from. And then in the 232 for steel and aluminum, it's it's similar. It's you know you have to show that um, you would be severely harmed if you have to pay the tariff, um, and that um, you cannot get it anywhere else. Um, and um, you cannot get it in the United States, and um, and a few other things. But so then, so what we we did it was we started scraping the website um, when they started reporting all these uh, all the data and all the cases, and that was really interesting. It was the first time we we did that, and um, and we found that we had to basically change the algorithm to put in. Um, like five or ten second delays between cases because we were crashing, the, <laughs> we were crashing the website of the government. So we, um, so we did that, and then um, and we figured out how to scrape enough data to understand what was going on. And we found that over time, we saw that wow, you know, there are a lot more exclusion requests being filed than the government thought there would be. You know, Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross 
when this whole thing started, thought um, they would get about 4,500 exclusion requests. Well, fast forward to today, and there's over, what is it, like over, what is it, 50, 100,000. Um, I mean, it's multiple times that. So, and, and, and to me, that, that indicates, or at least it's consistent with the notion that they severely underestimated the downstream effects, right? I mean, if you if you thought you would only get 4,500 exclusion requests and you ended up getting nearly, I think it's nearly up to 100,000 now, um, it's that's a, that's an indication of underestimating the downstream effects. We also found with the steel and aluminum, what was really interesting is the way they have the process set up is that, uh, so let's say I'm a manufacturer of say nails, but I import steel or aluminum to make those nails. And so I make my request and show that has nothing to do with China's 20 made in you know 2025 or 2030 plan. I can't get it anywhere else. And if I have to pay this tariff, it will severely harm my business. But if a US steel company objects to my request, then my chances of getting that waiver basically go to zero. And the data on that were really surprising because the objections really seemed to matter. And then we looked at the objection data and we found that the US steel makers who are filing these objections, the quantity that they were objecting to outweighed their annual production. And so in other words, they were objecting to unrealistic amounts and their objections were consequential in that they blocked US manufacturers from accessing globally competitive price inputs. And so that's another uh, concern, you know, for an economist that when um, the process results in, in US firms not being able to access globally competitive price inputs, when Europe and Asia and, and all your other competitors out there who sell abroad and in the US, by the way, when they can access globally competitive price steel, right? Then that's putting our own US manufacturers in, in, um, in an uncompetitive position. That is all really fascinating, Christine, um, to hear about what you're finding by looking into this process and really examining it very deeply. One follow-up to that is, given that the number of exclusion requests filed far, far exceeded what some policymakers anticipated, does that bolster the chances of your moonshot becoming a reality, <laughs> would you say? <laughs> I don't know, Jill. I, um, it's something that we'll continue working on, and, and, um, and I hope that our that, that the next generation of economists will continue working on after, after um, we leave here. Um, I don't know if it will happen in our lifetime or not, but I do know that if we don't keep trying, then it won't happen. And you, you know, it's surprising. I mean, we go up to the Hill and speak to members of Congress and their staffers, um, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, they will all tell you that they they you know once you explain it to them they either already know or they, they get it and it's it's not a difficult concept to to grasp um, but they are under you know um, some of them are under quite a lot of political pressure and you know over time these these industries that have received so much protection and special treatment including the steel industry 
over time, they've just really uh, garnered and accumulated a lot of political power. And uh, it was interesting, about, it was a couple months ago, Senator Grassley on the Senate floor was complaining about the economic harm of the steel tariffs because there were a lot of manufacturers in his district that were that were getting hit pretty hard. And, and he said, you know, whenever I talk to my colleagues about rolling these these tariffs back, all I hear is about, you know, well, we're going to get a lot of blowback from the supporters of those tariffs, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's just, um, I guess that's more of a, a question for your, some of your political economy students to, to look into, but, um, right, but because, in terms of the economics, you know, it's, it's pretty clear. Right. That's interesting because the, the users of some of these products in the supply chain are in, could be in lots of different industries and aren't unified perhaps as a, as a political block, if you will, in terms of how they might voice their concerns on these, the way a one industry is. So that, exactly. that's an interesting point. We could talk much longer, so you'll have to come back on Trade Matters. <laughs> um, last question, which I ask every guest on this show, and that is, what have you read lately about trade, a book or an article, a report, other than what you've written, Christine, <laughs> that is particularly striking to you? Well, I think one, one thing I've read that really crystallized a lot of my thinking about global value chains was The Great Convergence by Richard Baldwin. And for uh, your listeners and, and your students, uh, or just even interested armchair economists um, who are interested in trade and globalization issues, this is such a great book. Baldwin has this amazing, first of all, the, the book is so well written. And and his graphics and charts and data visualizations are all, um, uh, they, they could all be on their own. So he always includes like a little blurb about exactly what you're looking at, what the key takeaway is. It's such a great book. But for me, it really crystallized my thinking on the um, flows of goods, services, and digital flows across borders over time. When I was in grad school, you know, I was thinking about things, you know, country, country to country level, uh, you know, which country managed in which sector, and that could explain a lot of trade flows. And then over time, it became more a firm level analysis. But with Baldwin, it really brought this finer degree and that how international competition is becoming even more individual, right? It's not, it's not necessarily country, and it's not even necessarily firm anymore. It's almost becoming an individual level of international competition, right? And so once knowledge can move across borders so easily, um, you know, it's, it's really individuals competing against other individuals. Uh, and then it really puts the, the highlight on any of the constraints or opportunities that, that affect that individual in that location. And so that's why I think trade rules will be so exciting over the next century because we're basically going to have to rewrite them because the things that can move across borders today, very different than what could move across borders when we wrote the WTO. Even remember NAFTA, 1995, there was this little company called Amazon that was just about to go public. And that was when NAFTA was being signed. Right. <laughs> so it was, I would say, definitely overdue for a modernization. And I would say the WTO is, is also due for a modernization. Mm. Well, that sounds like a, an interesting, timely, and forward-looking book. Thank you for mentioning that. Um, 
And thank you, Christine McDaniel, thank you so much for sharing all of this insight with us today on Trade Matters. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Trade Matters. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to Bryce Duskett and Brianne Wolf for helping produce this podcast. Please subscribe to Trade Matters on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have ideas or topics you would like to hear about on Trade Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at yiterinstitute at unl.edu. That's Y-E-U-T-T-E-R institute at unl.edu. Or follow us on Twitter at UNL underscore Yiter. Opinions expressed on Trade Matters are solely those of the guest or host, and not the Yiter Institute or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.